boy's got utter belief in it. And somehow she's found the acceleration. Hello everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Let's Run.com Track Talk Podcast. Thanks for joining us once again as we break down the biggest stories in the world of running. Last weekend we saw Yalamzerf Yehulo of Ethiopia, just 22 years old, run the fastest women's debut marathon ever in Hamburg. We saw the Duck Track Club come up just short of the world best in the 4 by mile relay out in Eugene. A thing Mo ran her first 800 meter race of the year. Hobbs Kessler opened up in the 1500 meters. And Brittany Brown, that's right, Brittany Brown, 2019 World Championship silver medalist in the 200, ran 1066 win eight, wind aided in the 100 meters. Shocking result. Plus, it's relays week. Pen relays, Drake relays, both on tap this weekend. We'll talk a little bit about them. Carson Warholm has turned down $32,000 to race Rye Benjamin at Pre-Classic. We'll weigh in on that decision and a whole lot more. This is Jonathan Gold. I'm joined by my co-hosts, Robert Johnson and Weldon Johnson, the co-founders of Let's Run.com. Guys, excited to talk some track with you, as always, this week. John, we've got a guest at the end of the podcast, Jerry Buma. He's the former captain of the Villanova track team, Appropriate guest. He's got a new book out on the greatness of Villanova track and field. I'm almost a little too young for this, or yeah, too young. It's called Touching Greatness Forever Together, the Villanova Track Story. Villanova won 16 straight DMRs at Penn. Talks about the great Jumbo Elliott. I mean, they had Eamon Coughlin, Marty LaCory, Sidney Marie, Don Page. Apparently, also, they had Jim Ryan's number. But great lessons about the Villanova team, but also lessons in life. Jerry was instrumental in getting Worlds to Edmonton in 2001. So, link to the book if you want to buy it as well in the show notes. John, it's great to see you here. We missed you on the Friday 15 bonus podcast. By the way, folks, if you love this podcast, why not? Enjoy two a week. Go to let'srun.com slash subscribe and join our supporters club. But John, when was it? Wednesday, Thursday last week. We spent a lot of time and resources working with sports scientist Ross Tucker. We said, Ross, did we have some questions about the Shelby Houlihan case? John's called it a tragedy. Can you take a look at it? He spent weeks. I wonder how many hours. I told Walden I thought it was over 100 hours. Writes two pieces on it. And he says, the evidence does not support her claim of the burrito, tainted burrito. And I'm sure everyone wanted to hear your reaction to it. And conveniently, you were gone on Friday. It's like one of those things when the scandals hit. Oh, the host is gone on a vacation. We tried to tell people it really was scheduled in advance. People didn't believe it. Even I wasn't sure if I believed I had to go back and check the notes to make sure you put it in for a day off. I thought... Originally, when you weren't there, I was like, wait a minute. Has John secretly been pursuing Mallory Edens in the dating world? And now that she's dating Aaron Rodgers, he's devastated. But no, it was not that. No, I'm kidding. We didn't talk about that why in the Friday 15, by the way. I apologize. We said we would. Are you even sure that Aaron Rodgers is dating Mallory Edens? He's the daughter of the Bucks owner, 
former Princeton runner. I think that's just speculation on your part. But also this Houlihan thing, Robert, wait, you said people didn't believe that this was a scheduled day off. Please name me one person who told you that. John, this is let's run. I mean, Robert just hates the pulse of the people. He knows what they're thinking. He doesn't even need to ask them. <laughs> I would call some would call what Robert just did fake news. I don't know if you guys are among that crew, but yeah, I, I thought the pieces by Ross were excellent, very fact based. I thought they were really helpful. Definitely explained some of the scientific concepts that I wasn't a hundred percent certain on when reading the case in September. But look, even in September, I acknowledge the facts are not in Shelby's favor. Even if she is innocent, it's an exceedingly high bar to clear the one that AIU and WADA imposes to get you the conviction overturned by CAS. And she she didn't meet that. I understand why they ruled against her. But And afterwards, am I more likely to believe that it was intentional use after reading what Ross said? Yeah, a little bit more, but that doesn't mean I, I think Shelby's full of shit and has been lying the whole time. Because I think there are a couple things that I still have question marks about. And one is the pork diet of whatever pork was served in that burrito, assuming, you know, it was a pork burrito during at the time. Remember she got this in December, 2020. This was the height of COVID. Were there disruptions to the food supply? Did the diets change? Because we know based on her carbon isotope ratios in the sample, the reason why they are saying, Oh, this can't be endogenous pork is because the carbon isotope levels don't line up with, what you would think it, uh, a pork, you know, the pork diet. Sorry. Hold on, John. Hold on here, John. Hold on. You're getting in the weeds, breaking down, essentially saying, well, her the pig could have come to the woods. You said, even if she is innocent, some people are already upset with those words right there. Will you admit it? Shelby Houlihan has been found guilty by Cass. Yeah, well, and of course I agree that CAS found her guilty. That's not what we're debating here. We all know that. But I'm saying there are a couple things that I still have questions about. One is the whether the pork supply chain, whether the diets were changed due to COVID, and whether it's really the supply chain is really as sound as the expert witness John McGlone said in the case, because he's really the only one making arguments about this. Hulahan's side didn't really push back that much, or if they did, it's not reflected in the trans in the in the reasoned decision that was released. So that's one thing. And the other is a lot of the evidence used to convict her was based on the nandrolone levels in pork meat. And she's very specifically saying she was eating, she's trying to claim that they ate offal. And stomach is the one she proposed. And then there was an explanation as to why it couldn't be stomach. But I don't know. I guess if you're asking me, do I still, do I think this is the final nail in the coffin and that I should just accept that she's a, a doper and intentional cheat? I don't accept that. I just think that there's still a possibility she's innocent. Obviously, there's a possibility she's she was intentionally cheating as well, but I'm not going to say 100%. Definitely, I know for a fact she was doping. No one knows that. No one can say 100% they know what was going on except for Houlihan herself. Glad to hear your take on it. I think Walden made a good point because even when you said even if she's innocent or even if she's guilty, like you angered the people that are – it's like – I don't think the let run message board, the people that are on that thread about Hulahan or the average runner, but the people that are on that thread, they would be outraged that you even assume that. Like to them, the nail in the coffin was a long time ago. She's clearly guilty, blah, blah, blah. To you, this doesn't change that much. 
doesn't the Tucker piece doesn't change that much to me. It doesn't either, really. Um, I mean, I'm glad we did it. One of the reasons was I didn't like how we were being called doping apologists. We made fun of you for quote unquote being a doping apologist when you wrote your piece calling the American uh, tragedy. I think it is a tragedy whether she's guilty or innocent. Either way, it's just it's either a tragedy for fans or tragedy for her personally. But look. <laughs> We're not doping apologists. We've been known for asking the hard questions from the day one of Let's Run's founding. And we still ask the hard questions. And look, if I was defending a doping apologists, why would I pay a guy thousands of dollars to write a piece that just decimated your case? I wouldn't. I've tried to say this all along. I want people to know. I play it straight. Generally, I'm a skeptic. So if someone tells me one thing, I'm going to question that and go to the other side. So with Ozzy Wilson and Jerry Lawson getting off, I'm like, wait a minute. Why are they getting off? Is it really 50% chance that this beef was tainted? Now, I never really talked much about it because then you're accused of accusing somebody of being who's innocent of being guilty. I'm not convinced that it was over 50% chance in either of those cases. I think LJ showed it could be this, but 50%, I don't know. And to me, the biggest problem is if the AIU, I mean, I, I'll read a text right now from, I can't say who it's from, but why don't you do a piece on how water USA ADR at each other's throats and how athletes' livelihoods are in the balance because of their toxic relationship. If Shelby had been tested by USADF that fateful morning, she would have been exonerated in a second. Look, if that's true, we need to write that story. So anyone listening right now, if you know that to be true, if you're a scientist and you don't want to go on the record, we will write the story off the record. If you're a lawyer of Shelby's, if you're a friend of Shelby's, if if you're just a friend of Jerry Lawson or Ajay Wilson, if that's if you're Travis Tiger, if you work for USADA, contact us right now. Jonathan Galt at Let's Run, Robert at Let's Run, Weijo at Let's Run, 844-538-776, because we want to write that story. That to me, just the system and look, I've always said if it was one in a million, that one one out of a million people in America just because of the, of the tainted beef size is going to test positive, I don't think that's good. So I think it means much more or less to me reading this. It's less likely that she's innocent. I agree. I've always been open to the fact that she's a doper, but to me, I don't think it's a doping group. Robert, you have to be open to the fact that she was doping intentionally because again, they've been, she's been convicted by CAS. They've had a panel. They've ruled against her. It was found in her system. You can't just say that's not any, not a possibility at all. But I would say this, that do, do you think that, Meat contamination is an issue in the sport and in drug control testing. You know, when you're in drug testing, that as we are able to detect higher and higher levels of sensitivity of these small little substances, are athletes going to be testing positive when it's really something they've consumed through meat or other innocent means? I would say that is an issue. That's an issue that Travis Tygott, who is as anti-doping as it comes, he has raised this issue as well. And when when you consider that in the larger context of it, and then I look at what I know about Bowman Track Club and the athletes in it and their coaches, they've never ever struck me as a group that would condone doping in any kind of in any manner. Again, during the Jerry uh, during the Dr. Brown situation, Jerry Schumacher had athletes sent to Dr. Brown on Salazar's recommendation, and then he decided to pull away from that because he didn't like what he was seeing. To me, I add these two things together, and that's why I wrote it was a tragedy at the time. And yes, I did write that editorial without having full access to the reasoned decision. But 
I view this innocent athletes being te- being popped through food contamination. I do think that could be a growing issue in the sport over the years to come. Again, Travis Tigart spoken out about this. And there are, there are a lot of cynics out there who just say, nope, any sort of substance, if they pop up, RJ Wilson has to be a doper. Will Clay has to be a doper. Jerry and Lawson, they're all dopers. There are way more people doping than we actually catch. And now they're being given pass. I would say, I think it's more likely that in some of those cases, it's just we're getting better and better at testing and detecting these levels that were not previously detectable. And I think that's going to be a major story in the years to come. Absolutely. I agree with, with, with virtually all of what you just said. Um, do I think it's a problem with the food supply? Yes, because the jury and Lawson and Ajay Wilson cases didn't make me sit well. I thought the odds that they're dopers are much higher than if they hadn't tested positive. And the same thing w- with Shelby. But it, to me, the Ajay Wilson case and Shelby are similar in the sense of you test positive and you're like, oh, what could have happened? Did you eat at a Jamaican restaurant? Yes, that's more likely to have this beef. Now, Ajay's Wilson's and isotopes matched up, so she's off. Okay, what Shelby tested for is the most likely thing is pig offal. Who eats that? Nobody. Shelby happened to be at a, bur- at a at a truck that had that. Now, she didn't order it. So I can see why they went down that road. Um, so I, but, and then Jerry and Lawson, a woman provided false, the only reason he got off is because the woman provided false testimony. That woman, Christine Ayet, is the key woman in this Shelby Houlihan case. So I get it. But I, it was interesting to me, like, we asked, you know, Tucker repeatedly, what would you do? He's like, well, I'd hire private investigators. I would question Professor, uh, who's who's the food expert, John? John McGlone. John McGlone. Yeah, who's got the money for that? The average person does not. So first of all, am I skeptical of what you, uh, Professor McGlone said? Yes. Do I think that the food supply is perfectly run and they don't cut corners? Of course not. I'm so skeptical of big business that I, I don't believe that. But um, look, this is what should have happened. It's been butchered by the Bowerman Track Club in the sense of, I don't think they really believed or knew that this pork thing was it, but that was the only option they had. You can't just argue anything. They should have come out and said, look, she's tested positive. We run a clean program. We believe her. We don't think she's done anything. There's a major problem. We think that there's a major problem. Ajay Wilson, Jerry and Lawson, Travis Tiger says it, and we are going to look into it. Phil Knight has pledged a million dollars. Me, Jerry Shoemaker, I'm pledging $100,000. Shelby Houlihan's going to pledge $50,000. We're going to try to get to the bottom of this instead of acting like she ate pork when she ordered chicken and all these things. How much are you and John pledging? I love how Robert loves giving away everybody else's money, but a million dollars for Phil Knight is nothing if he wants to do it. I think if anyone's going to save Shelby, it's him. I mean, it's good. It's going to take a lot of money. That's what Ross said. We don't need to rehash the case. We talked about it on the Friday 15. If you want always want to hear all the let's run inside, join supporters club. But on that podcast, we we said how this thing came about. We just first reached out to Ross to get a clear-cut opinion on this case. I thought he'd say, clearly dirty, clearly not. And he's like, that's not how it works. And we kept talking to him. I'm like, It took him a week to write a long email back to me. And I'm like, wow, this needs more analysis. Yet there's other people out there who are like, oh, yeah, she's clearly dirt- dirty because of her improvement curve. And I'm like, what's the point? Why do you even follow the sport if that's how you believe? So... As we said, we may have Ross on for a podcast. Email us if you've got questions. We'll link to a big thread on this. It's over like 25 pages now. I'm only halfway in. I got stalled this weekend. But people are pointing out great things on there, so check it out. But let's turn to running. Well, John being gone, I also heard some news this week. 
John's roommate won a national championship. And John, fill us in. Like, I don't, I didn't even know you had a roommate who runs, to be honest. Yeah, Zach Beaven, he won the US 100K championships over the weekend in Madison, Wisconsin. I didn't think we were going to talk about it in the podcast because we never covered the US 100K championships in the past, but that's true. I was very happy for him. Congrats to Zach. I mean, John is just totally like, that's the British side. You can't get John to deviate. Like, today's society, man, John, your roommate won a national title. I don't care if you guys aren't like best, best buddies. Like, we should have had him on the podcast or something. Wait, I wasn't even planning this, but hey, John, does he, does he have third body jet boots? He's going to really need to recover. Oh, he definitely is in need of them well done because he has been walking around the apartment. It's been difficult for him to bend over to pick things up. Just, you know, the, his quads are, are trashed from, you know, racing 100K, obviously. So I'm sure he could use a pair. Okay, great. These things are wireless. Therabody, makers of the Theragun. Recovery Air, Jet Boots. I love them. At soccer game number two over the weekend. Fired them up. My seat. Usually my feet pound after the first few soccer games. I was able to go for a run on Monday. We're still looking for that goalie. If you want to be the goalie, check us out. But these things, if you're skeptical, if you've ever been thinking about, hey, I should get these recovery boots, now's the time to do it. Special link in the show notes. You can get a 60-day money-back guarantee. You don't like them, send them back. What do you have to lose? Like, give it a go. These things don't, you can take them in any room. The pump is built in them. It's great. They're wireless. They stay charged for, I don't know, I, I can use them like three or four times without charging them. They're great. Therabody.com slash let's run. Link in the show notes. Now, should I be Debbie Downer here? Holden says I like to criticize everything. But when I heard John's roommate won, I was kind of excited. I was like, this is kind of cool. Why is John talking about this? And then I was trying to find the results. I found them at one point. I can't find them now. They are very hard to find. Weldon, do you know how many finishers there were at the US 100K? 26. I believe it was 14. Is that what it was, John? I sent it to you. You have a better memory than me. You didn't send it to me. I stand go. I apologize if I made it fake news. I believe it was 14, male and female. So then I was like, wow, you only beat seven people. But then I thought, you know what? Is that really a negative? There's only seven people that even consider running this thing that are you know, tough enough or whatever. It's like, I always say this about the rich people. Like, I don't think it's very hard to make money when you're rich. Like how many people could possibly buy Twitter? There's only like two, one human being that owns enough money in the world to possibly buy it individually. So like, like, well, yes, but they're so advanced to get to that level to be able to even contemplate buying it. So. Yeah, obviously it's part of it self-selecting. You don't show up to that event. You don't even enter it unless you're ready to do it. And it takes a certain type of person to even get to the level where you're contemplating running it. And the amount of people in a race is sort of fake news as well. I won the Marine Corps Marathon. I don't know. I think it has like 20,000 people in it. My wife saw a picture. My wife. My aunt saw a picture of the washington newspaper with it on the cover and all the people the starting line she goes oh my gosh where did you start and i said well you know right here the, i pointed at the very i think you could probably see me from this overhead shot i'm like there i am right there and she goes well no matter no wonder you won like i started in, in front row like the people behind me didn't have a chance so 
you know, 12 people, if you fill it with 12,000 behind him, it's not going to make much of a difference, Robert. How many, how many people really had a chance to win the, like the New York City Marathon? Probably about 12. Right. All right. So we've started this podcast by spending about 15 minutes with me still defending Shelby Houlihan. Then we've transitioned to the US 100K Championships. Are you guys intentionally trying to drive off all of our most dedicated listeners? Can we actually talk about the stuff they really would be interested in, which I think we start with Hamburg and the greatest marathon debut we've ever seen by a woman? Can I just mention Jim Walsley's name? He's a very popular podcast guest, so maybe the algorithms will pick that up as well. Carry on, John. No, no, no. That's a good way to game the system. Jim Walmsley, Jim Walmsley, Jim Walmsley, Jim Walmsley. You know, maybe uh, we'll rise up the charts because people do love talking about him. And he's a great guy, former guest of the podcast. Really you know, good guy to talk to. But yeah, let's go to Hamburg. Yalmsdorf, Yahuwah Law. Performance of the weekend. 217-23 by the 22-year-old Ethiopian to win Hamburg. And I saw this result. I was really impressed, but also I wasn't exactly shocked. Because Yelimsef Yehulor, if you've been paying attention to the sport, she's one of the biggest talents that we have. She's run 29.14 on the roads for 10K. That's the road world record. She's run 63.51 for the half marathon. Only one other person has broken 60. Only one other woman has broken 64 minutes. And that's Latessa Mbekide. And she trains with Degatua Zimmeror, who was runner-up in London last year in 2.17. So... If you told me you know, her goal going in, I talk, spoke to her agent, Dan Vandenberg, before the race. He said that they wanted to do Hamburg because it's just a little bit of an easier debut than throwing her to the Wolves in a world marathon major. They thought the course record would be a good goal for her to go for. So that's what she went for. She ran a lot faster than the course record. She ran 217.23. The previous fastest debut was all the way back in 2002, Paula Radcliffe, 218.56. So Really impressive. It kind of reminded me of when Kipchoge debuted. Remember, he didn't choose a big major for his marathon debut. He chose Hamburg also and then became the greatest marathoner we've ever seen. I'm not saying that's going to happen with Yahulor, but I like that there's sort of a plan in place. She's not. She's still young. She didn't make the Olympic team last year. She was only fourth of the Ethiopian trials, but I imagine she's not done on the track at, or at half marathons either. But it's nice to know that she's got a lot of potential in the marathon when she moves there full time. This shows, I don't know if she's made for the marathon, but she can tolerate the marathon distance. Like her, I don't know, her half is probably still better than her marathon, but she's going to be a marathon superstar or star. She already is. I mean, the future is very bright for, I'm not even, I'm just calling her Y squared. Oh, yeah. No, that was our nickname for her. I remember I first heard of her when she medaled at the World Half Championships in 2020. I don't think I knew her name before that. But I'm just hoping that her and Latessa Mbekide, that once they get to the marathon, the current Kenyan crop of superstars, Bridget Kosgai, Perez Jepchia, Jocelyn Jep Kosgai, they haven't all faded yet because we're in a special spot right now with those women going head-to-head. But... I would love to see a great Ethiopian Kenyan slugfest with Y squared and Gide on one side and Bridget Kosgai and Perez Jipchichir on the other side. I think maybe Paris or LA, if they're all still around for those Olympic marathons would be fantastic. John, you said she might not be done with the track. It wouldn't surprise me if she never runs a track race ever again. She's barely running to begin with. looks like she's undefeated for her life at 5,000 meters, 1451. 
but doesn't make the Olympic trials. I think she was what fourth or fifth. Ran like 30-20 and got lapped by Gede. But I'm looking at the Olympic 10,000 results. I mean, Gede, as good as she is, only third. Hassan, Kalkadon Gezahenge, remember her? She was silver. Will we ever see her again? They were talking about someone suspicious. Helena Berry, fourth. Then you've got intersex athlete Francine Nsaba, fifth. Not easy. There's so much more money on the roads. If I were in her position, do you try to run a full major or do you just run the World Half Championships this fall or do you just show up to some you know, great North run, just try to collect some road race prize money? What, what would she? I do know she's running the Antrim Coast Half Marathon in August, but beyond that, she doesn't have any plans uh, ready to announce. Uh, well, I just told her to give up the track forever. The interesting thing is with an early world, but it's over on July. It's over on Let's Run Like Confounders Day, right? July 24th. Is that the last day? Yeah. My birthday, by the way, folks, in case you're wondering what Founders Day is, please, whatever gift you give me, you need to give a similar one to Walden, though, because we're twins. It'll be a, It's kind of insulting if you give one way better gift than the other. But there's time to kind of get in shape for that and still do a fall marathon. Now, I do think the Kipchoge mention was a good one. How is his career so good? He doesn't try to get greedy. Two marathons. But she's super young, 22. But I was thinking about this, John. Imagine if she ends up being like Kipchoge. But she starts the marathon at 22. I mean, she, <laughs> she could win like 25 majors. Well, that is the crazy thing. Like, could you imagine if Kipchoge, he won the world title in the 5,000 when he was 18 years old in 2003. Imagine if he had been running marathons since 2003. Like, do, do you think he would have just broken down? He seems like he has a system that's very sustainable. He's never injured, and he's well into his 30s at this point. It, it's hard to imagine anyone being even more dominant, but could you imagine, like, two decades of Kachoge dominating the marathon instead of what? It's nuts. It's It would be like Tom Brady, basically. You know, he won those three Super Bowls at the start of his career, and then he won three more, and then he won with, with yeah. I couldn't imagine Kipchoge starting the marathon in like 03 or 04, though. You're the, you're the Jeopardy trivia guy, John. I want you to tell me the world record in the marathon heading into the fall marathon season 2003. I believe it was 205.38 by Kili Kanucci. A little human computer. Good job, John. Nailed it. I mean, that's nuts. But, I mean, Kipchoge's the same guy was competing then. He's now running 201.39. Now, shoes help a lot, but the record, John, you nailed it. 205.38. Turgot took it to 204.55 that September. But, wow. I mean, just... I would have liked to see him take up the marathon then because I think if Kipchoge had been running the marathon for 10 years before Super Shoes, he would have run a lot faster than anyone did without Super Shoes. And this ridiculous argument that Robert has made a few times on this podcast that, oh, he's basically only as good as his fastest marathons only worth as fast as what Dennis Cometo ran. And, you know, he's his best, very best isn't anything special. I just think that would get annihilated because I, I think he's just way better than any marathoner we've ever seen. Okay, John, trivia question. What is Elliot Kipchoge's marathon PB before the Super Shoes? 204 flat when his shoes were falling apart in Berlin in 2015. And I'm going to get you here. 
because I've heard you make that argument before. And finally, it, it hit me in the middle of the night when I was sleeping about six months ago, and I've been waiting to spring this on you. And guess what, John? Why were the shoes flapping everywhere? The insoles fell out. Yes, because it was a prototype of the damn super shoe. Do you know that, or are you just guessing? No, I know th that was reported at the time. It was a prototype. Was it a prototype of the Vapafly? Like, I also don't know for sure. The twenty, the shoes he won in, wore in London in two thousand sixteen. I think they were Vapafly prototypes when he ran two hundred three hundred five. I'm not a hundred percent sure on that, but you realize that Marathon has been racing in prototype shoes for decades, Robert. Just because they were a prototype doesn't mean they were the Vaporfly prototype. I'll take your silence as begrudging acceptance of my point. Well, no, what's your point? I, I've never said he's not the greatest marathoner of all time, and you've never not... Th this is what modern politics is like. People act like there's a huge divide in this country. I don't actually think that there is. There's not even a huge divide between us. I've never said he's not the greatest marathoner of all time, and you've never s said the super shoes don't make a big difference. Just about what you emphasize, but no. But your point has been: you take away the super shoes, his performance is basically as good as Dennis Comedo's was in the previous world record. That's the point you've made, right? Well, I'm not sure. How do I know Comedo was clean? Well, we don't. We don't know how if anyone's clean. So, th this is what John Kellogg says: the doping makes every comparison bad. Do I think Kipchoge is by far the greatest marathoner in history? Well, actually, no, I don't. He's by far the greatest, but I think he's by far the fastest. Hell no. I mean, Kenesa Bekele ran 201.41. Right. And then you would say, well, did Bekele, was Kipchoge's best efforts actually in breaking two or the Ineos 159 challenge? But no, uh, yeah, that's a very fair point. His marathon world record is only two seconds faster than Bekele. Anyway, moving on, there's other stuff to talk about that happened over the weekend. I think we were going to go to the Oregon Relays in Eugene. This is an event that we kind of derided a little bit last week on the podcast, but mainly because of the social media aspect of it, but that the Oregon track and field Twitter account was just saying, oh, we put out a call to local pro groups and college teams and no one showed up, You know, even though everyone knew that On Athletics was going for this record at the Penn Relays this weekend. But... I, I certainly watched this event on Saturday night at Haywood Field. They had the people lining the track for it. It didn't look like the stands were packed, but I credit them coming up with some idea to get people to show up. So, yeah, I'm not totally – look, I, I like you guys said, they're doing something to try to drum up publicity for this event. Should they have been at Penn? Yes, but – I'm glad that there are at least people in town excited about this race. And it was fun to watch. You know, they came close to the record. Didn't get it, but I gained more appreciation for the, well, world best, I guess. The world best was 1549.08 by an Irish team from 1985. And this Duck alum team ran 1552.05. So they missed it by three seconds. But I enjoyed watching it. What about you, Robert? I thought it was a fantastic event. First of all, John, the, the the stands weren't full. The stands were empty. I mean, give me a break. Like to compare this to the Oregon relays to the Penn relays or Drake relays, is a joke. But no, it was a great event. It was good for the sport and, and, and good for Oregon track and field and the Oregon relays. And that's what I said last weekend. That's what they're doing at home. They need something at this event to entertain the fans. And it was very entertaining. I actually watched it. And there's a lot of things I don't bother to watch. 
Um, yes, our criticism was totally on their fake news tweet. Like we asked everybody to come out when you had top college coaches saying they never asked us. I would have been there if I could have been there, et cetera. But we all said, or Weldon and I both said on the podcast on Friday, look, I think they're going to destroy this record. Or not destroy it, but beat it. And they didn't. And I was stunned about the pacing lights. We talked about changing the pacing lights. And can you individualize it? And it doesn't appear that they really did that because the first leg by Matt Wisner was better than I think it, most people would have expected, 359. And they were behind the lights the whole time. So maybe it would be hard to do it, I, I feel like, to readjust. But if they just put the pacing lights at four minutes for the first two and 355 for the next two, it would have been perfect. He would have had something to chase after. But I think we grossly as- overestimated like how easy this was going to be to do. I guess they didn't. Ha- they weren't helped by pacing lights. So was I, was I a little bit surprised they didn't get the record? At the time, yes. But now that I look back at it, no. And if you have you guys seen the stat that I put in the week that was? This is the most amazing stat of all time. We went in and looked up the PRs of the 1985 Irish team. Eamon Coughlin, Marcus Sullivan, Frank O'Meara, Ray Flynn. And compared them to the to the Oregon team. The Irish team adds up to 1524.69. The Oregon team, 1528.10. We're using your best mile or 1500, converting it to a mile. Both teams ran exactly 2.6, not exactly, 2.6% off their PRs. That's absolutely amazing to me. So let's throw out the pacing lines because the pacing lines didn't really help. It's just, I guess, you're going to run 2.6% off your PBs. So that makes me very skeptical of what's going to happen at Penn. If they don't have pacing lights there, it looks like the on-athletics guys are a little bit slower than the working guys in terms of PRs. Uh, I thought for sure the record would go if you asked me a week ago. Now, I think No, I, I think survive. in a four-by-mile attempt like this, you have to add about two or three seconds to everyone's personal best because most people are not racing anyone else. You're just trying to solo it. Like Kupitia, he set his personal best in the mile in a specifically geared time trial with a pacer and everything on a really fast track. This it's a lot more difficult when you're just going out there on their own. So I thought he did very well to split 353. I thought Matt Wisner did exceptional to split 359, especially because he ran 339 in the 1500 the night before. Granted, he actually had someone to follow, like another human being. So that helped him a little bit. But those two both ran great legs. James West has run 334 in the past, but... He's pretty clearly not in that kind of shape right now. So I wasn't really shocked that he ran 401. I think Cole Hawker is kind of the one you look at. This is where we really could have gone a little faster. His PB is 331 for 1500 meters. You convert that, it's 349 for the mile. Now, again, that was set in the Olympic final when he's facing the fastest guys in the world to chase. Like, obviously, you're not going to be able to get that same kind of time, but I think him running 357 was a little bit disappointing. And I think if you put, ironically, if you put him at Penn, he's a guy who thrives off of chasing other people and racing head to head. You know, he's a terrific racer. And if you put him in a four by mile at Penn with on athletics club, and he's got someone to duke it out running 353 pace for the third leg, I think he could, he could run 353. So that's sort of where they might have missed it. But no, they, they gave it their best shot. They came up short. And I think more than anything, it just showed me that record by the Irish squad, Eamon Coughlin, Marcus O'Sullivan, Frank O'Mara, and Ray Flynn from 37 years ago. It's it's impressive. And look at that squad. Coughlin, 
O'Sullivan and Frank O'Mara, they were all world champions. Outdoors for Coughlin and indoors for O'Mara and O'Sullivan. And then Ray Flynn is still the Irish record holder at 349. So that was just a golden generation of Irish talents coming together on the right day. I, you know, I, I gain more respect for that time after what we saw on Saturday night. Yeah, and I feel like the record is soft and should go in general. But then I see the Irish team and I'm like, wow, those are four names I've heard of, you know, more than heard of. Like, it's pretty legendary names of the time. Then I'm like, okay, these Oregon guys, it's two pretty good milers. One other guy who's run fast and one guy who had a big question mark. Wisner came up big. If you told me he was going to run what he ran, I would have said, oh, yeah, they got the record. But then seeing what the other guys did, Cooper did what I thought Cole would do. But it's it's not easy, right? Certain guys aren't made out to run like that. So turning to Penn, do you guys think they'll get the record? I Penn's got worse weather, no pacing lights. And that was the thing for me. I thought the pacing lights were going to be of some assistance for these guys. But the, the, there was just really no help from the pacing lights. So I don't know. I thought Oregon was going to get it. There's a prediction contest up right now on the forums. I'll put a link to that. Person who comes closest to predicting the record, the actual time, wins a free pair of on shoes. If they break the record, I'll give away two pairs of shoes. One who predicts the closest below the time and one above the time. So, I don't know. My prediction, I think I had him running, what is this? I can't add. 1548.0? Is the record 1548.5? It's fifteen forty nine point oh eight. Um, but so you're saying they're going to get it? When I added up my individual times, they had them getting it. But in my mind now, I'm thinking no, they're not getting it after what happened at Oregon. But having said that, maybe there's less question marks on. But that's not the case. No, there are more questions. The the weakest length going in at Oregon is probably weaker than at pin but i don't know what do you guys think well if all these guys were healthy i think they'd have a pretty good shot to get it but joe klecker hasn't raced in a long time he he paced in december for that 5k but i don't think he's raced since august since september so i don't know what kind of shape he's in and then jonas race from switzerland he's run 337 but he's really more of a 3k 5k type and then Jordy Beamish great miler but also not the guy you really want in a time trial situation right he's a great racer but is not always the one pushing the pace up front Ollie Hoare can absolutely do that so if you get to the ankle leg and they need a I think he might be able to solo a 352 because remember he basically ran 350 from the front at Milrose in January so I don't think they're gonna get it because I do have a couple questions, just like what kind of fitness are Jonas Race and Klecker in right now? But it wouldn't shock me if they do. I certainly think it's, a you know, they wouldn't go for it if they didn't think they could at least get it. And again, it's not going to be a world record because A, it's not an official world record event. B, they're from different countries, but there'd be, it'd be a world best or fastest time ever or whatever. I think they have a better shot because there's not a weak link. We didn't know there was a weak link. I mean, James West... He was clearly the weak link with the 401, but indoors he had run 744. Now outdoors he'd run over 14, four, over 14 minutes for 5K and 343 for 1500. So if someone's 10 seconds after their PB, it doesn't make sense. I mean, the on guys are two seconds slower on their PBs, but 
they're probably closer to their form. But we don't know about Klecker. I mean, you talked about Hor- uh, Bemis, John. He's not good at racing. Do you lead him off? Normally, I would say lead off the lead flag so they have some people to run with. But you could, you might want to lead off Bemis, hope, have someone else from another stud from another team run, and just say, Bla- you've got to absolutely blast the last 400. And just get ahead, but then everybody else has got to run by themselves. Which is no, exciting. that's that's exactly what I would do, Robert. I think you got it right there. And then, you know, I'm looking at the weather forecast. You know me, dark sky, ten mile per hour winds. It's pretty windy in there. I don't think they're going to get it either, John. But you know, they could. I mean, certainly interesting. But the the big question I have, Weldon wants to know, will they get it? No, uh, the big question I have is Cooper Tier versus Cole Harker right now. Who do you have? I know they didn't run the same leg. But to me, this is too many times of Cooper Tier being better than Cole Hawker. To me, right now, Cooper Tier is better than Cole Hawker. If you had me pick the U.S. 1500 meter team, I'm picking Cooper Tier over Cole Hawker. What about you guys? Yeah, it's a great question, Robert. I it's hard to pick against Cooper Tier given he's never lost to Cole Hawker in that event. But at the same time, I have those memories of Cole Hawker just running down everyone in the country last year and all those miles. Like right now, if they were racing. Today, I think I'd probably take Kupatia, but at the U.S. Championships in June, Cole Hawker, I I don't think there's anyone in the U.S. who can close with him when he's on. So I'm going to pick Cole Hawker at USA's. I'm the same way. I still think of Cole Hawker as the mile or Cooper tier more the 5K guy, but that he, he's never lost to Cole Hawker in a 1,500 mile, so maybe that's crazy how we think about it. But... But kind of thinking of this four by mile again quickly, people do sort of line up a bit, right? Cooper Tier is your Ollie Whore. They can grind it out. Cole Hawker and Beamish are pretty similar. They like to kick off the pace. Cole Hawker's obviously run a lot faster than Beamish. And then you're sort of hoping your best for the for the two other guys. The one difference here is everybody's fresh. Because at the Oregon meet, everybody ran the night before. Matt Wisner actually, I think it was a PB, 339. Yeah, that was a big PB, right? The night before. So he was in good form. You knew that. Um, Tier Rabbit did the 5K. Hawker Rabbit did the 1500. And West ran 343 the night before. So West and Wisner sort of kind of almost duplicated what they did the night before in some ways, right? Like that's, but back to this on thing, the question marks really are, you can't, you can't have Jordy Beamish having an off day. Ollie Hoare needs to have an A day and Klecker better be healthy. And then this race guy better be pretty much on as well. And then if they, if they do that, it's, it should be pretty close. But then you added a 10 mile an hour per win, it's, it's not going to be as close. So I was totally confident before. Now I'm not. Look, Cole Hawker, in some ways, reminds me of the next row I want to get to, Hobbs Kessler. They both had massive 2021s, and there's a lot of expectations for these guys. And I think as, as distance fans, we make this mistake repeatedly. Oh, it, and even when you're a young runner, oh, I'm always going to be better. I'm always going to be better. I'm always going to be better. We don't know if you're going to be better. I'll think about the same thing. She, her best may have been last week, last year. You wouldn't think it's a 19-year-old, but you don't know. And to me, Hawker has not been as good as he was last year, just a little bit behind. And that takes us to Hopskessler. Guy runs 334 last year as a – was he 18 or 19, John? He was 18. Just I'm going to push back for one second on Cole Hawker. 
He ran a PB in the mile, and he won U.S. titles in the 1,500 and 3,000 indoors. I would say he's been basically just as good as he was last year. Fair enough. John lets the facts get in the way of a good narrative. I guess but he's just lost. Why was I thinking he's not as good? Because he got beat by... Beat by Jordy Beamish, who's a pro, who's like five years older than him at Milrose. And here, though. He's gotten beaten by Tier every time they've raced. Three times. Milrose. Yeah, that's why. He wasn't losing to Tier last year. That's why I was thinking he was a little bit off his game. He was losing to him. He just wasn't losing to him in the in the 3K at NCAA indoors. Right. When he was tired, Tier was fresh. That was big. And that, that, changed the, that changed the narrative on everything. That one race changed the narrative. Well, winning the U.S. title over Centaurus was pretty damn good, too. But, anyway, Hobbs Kessler, he makes his debut at the Jesse Owens Classic, and there was an interesting, this was very interesting to me because before the race, there was a message board thread about, like, what should we expect? He's his debut. People are saying 335, etc. I think it's very important to think, what were you thinking before it happened? Because I think oftentimes the results changes what you're thinking. And, look, this was like the best of let's run because where else do you have an Olympic silver medalist going on there? Nick Willis, who was training with Kessler. Now I texted Nick's, Nick's after the race. He said, look, I've only run with hops twice. I've been really busy with work and the family. I haven't been running with him, but, but um, Nick Willis goes on to let's run message board and responds to someone who predicted a 335. And he says 335 in Ohio in April. Why? This is a rust buster. Nothing more times matter. Not. When you're not in the NCAA, going to meets like this is actually a really important racing practice for running prelims at USA's and major championships. If it goes out in 210, 300 meters, great. And I just thought that was really interesting. So the times doesn't matter. And then later, I can't find the exact quote, but Willis says, my prediction, they go through the 800 and 203. He has trouble changing gears and he closes in 57 flat. What happened? Hobbs Kessler went through the 800 and 203, and he closed in 56.997. How sick is that? Nick Willis's prediction was 100% dead on. Yeah, that's pretty crazy, Robert. I was reading it in the week that was. I'm like, could that possibly be true? Is that actually what he wrote? So, yeah, clearly Nick Willis knows what he's talking about. I saw this result. Look, I'm not going to lie. I'm not really worried about the time. What does worry me just a little bit is he's getting out kicked by Ben Flanagan who's like a 10k you know road racing type i'm not gonna i'm not like selling all my hobbs castler stock or anything i'm gonna judge him on what he does in june at the u.s championships but you know would cole halka ever get out kicked by ben flanagan in any sort of 1500 i just i'm a little worried by that i mean john dude nick willis said i found the exact quote he feels good at the bell, but still struggles to get out of fourth gear in the final lap and only runs a 57. I mean, he nailed it. He like totally nailed it. So one thing Willis knows that we don't know, he has the experience, obviously, but he knows the training, like what they're doing. So maybe the first race of the year, he struggled. He knows like, okay, the Warhouse train, training, you're going to struggle with the kick. So I, I was just impressed that Willis... I think he was like second, maybe, or third in our prediction contest just on the time. Because I didn't know, is he going to run, what is it, the race might go out too flat. They might run, I don't know, 339, 340. Who knows what they're going to run. I was just impressed he got close to the time. And then I didn't realize he predicted it, like everything. The opening split, the final lap, 
But yeah, a little, I see John, a little worry about Ben Flanagan beating him. If you told me beforehand Ben Flanagan's going to beat him, I go, oh, not a good race. But hey, maybe Ben Flanagan's a modern day Galen Rupp. Guy used to have no kick, and that was a big kicker. But look, I did text Nick, and I was like, did you? I mean, he nailed it, but I was like, I kind of thought Nick was riding that, like, look, this reminded me of us of Alan Webb. I, my roommate, Chris Lear, was around Alan Webb 21 years ago. I showed up at NCAAs when Webb was a freshman in Michigan, and other guys are like, Webb's ridiculous. He thinks he's going to run 340. He's upset that he's not running 346 in the mile this year. Like, he thought he would do that. Now, eventually, he did run 346 in the mile, just not that year. Ron Wurst was the coach of Webb that year, his one year in college. So I thought, we've been through this again. They're trying to avoid that. So I was wondering, is Willis just being smart and going on the message board and putting this because just to purposely lower expectations? But no, I, I texted him. It's just, he's like, no, he's like, I, I put that based on my own personal experience. Quote from Nick, all my season opers are normally like what I predicted. So I just use that as the compass point. People look at these California meets and think everyone is trying to knock it out of the park. But Ron Wurst, normally, Ronnie, he calls him, Ronnie normally goes back to the drawing board for a while after indoors so it takes a while to turn things around outdoors i thought fitness wise it was a great result it was terrible tactics to lead the whole way but he didn't intend that he'll and he'll learn it's not easy to front run and do big negative splits this was a key point look at the oregon four by mile resorts with no one to fault those guys didn't run super fast either and anyways now i did he was listed as a dnf in the 800 after this, so I don't know if he got hurt. I asked Willis. Willis said he didn't know. But I said, Willis reminded me about the 800s. Remember, guys, I defended Centro when he ran a 150 last year in his opener. And he ended up being just fine for the Olympic trials. I would normally do a 152 to 154 to open at a small meet in eastern Michigan. The people didn't weren't looking at my results with a microscope. Amazing stuff. Bravo, Nick. You get the golf clap of the week. Speaking of Centro, are you guys worried at all that we haven't heard anything about this guy? Like, I know he does have a tendency to sort of come on late sometimes, but by this point in last year, he had already raced, and I haven't had any indications of him announcing anywhere. Maybe he just starts a season at the pre-classic. Are you, are you fine with this, or are you starting to think, oh, he's now he's 32 years old? Are you worried at all about Centro? Am I supposed to be worried if you if you just retired and never races again? I mean, worried isn't the right word, but I see what you're saying, John. I'd say, wow, you had a great career. Yeah, I'm worried. Jenny Simpson, John, where's Jenny Simpson? That's the same thing. Well, Jenny Simpson's house almost burned down, and she's had a lot of stuff to deal with in terms of like having to relocate and then rebuild her community. So I can kind of understand. But yes, I'm also... I was also wondering about her because she hasn't raced or shown any signs of racing. She usually, she often likes to open up at Drake. I mean, Centro we've seen sometimes he doesn't race until the pre-classic. So, you know, I'm putting my concern level at maybe like a four or five for them. Uh, but I'll judge them more based ways one when they open up. I'm putting my concern level much higher than that. Seven or eight. But John, you didn't listen to the Friday bonus podcast with the breaking news. Simpson, I mean, you didn't hear Centro clearly serving a shadow ban. He was Shelby's girlfriend. He ate a burrito at the same truck. That was a joke. That was a joke, people. He, he ran an entire 2021 season, including the Olympics. So oh. I did listen to the podcast, but I just didn't think it was a clever joke. 
Like the Twitter shadow bands, John? One person you haven't seen racing recently, Molly Huddle. But we've got a very good reason. She posted on Instagram today that she is the proud mom of Josephine Valerie Binger, born, I guess, yesterday, 426. She says, it was a long ride, but everyone is healthy. Thumbs up. So congrats to Molly and the Binger family. Wait a second, guys. I have an investment opportunity for you. And this is, this maybe also deserves the breaking news signal. Robert, can you play it for us, please? Well, then, I know you enjoy Ray's Take TV. I just pulled open Twitter. He has posted the following thing that he is offering $1,000 a $1, bet that Fred Curley will break the 100 meter world record this year. So to be clear, if Fred Curley does not run faster than 9.58 in the 100, you will win $1,000 from him. I think, do we do we take him up on this? It's good publicity for the sport. I feel like one of you guys needs to act. It could be an easy hunt. I mean, no one's come close to running 9.58 since Bolt set the world record back in 2009. Easy $1,000, right? Or do you guys believe in Fred Curley? Wow, John, like my wife now works for a private equity company. I'm not sure like what investments I'm allowed to do anymore, but I'm pretty sure I'm allowed to make illegal side bets with people on sports. Like that's got to be allowed, right? Like I love race take. I've been saying we should have him on the podcast or something. I think we have to put him on the podcast. And yes, cash my money. 50-50 odds. Like he should give like three to one odds. I don't want to like give Ray a bunch of money, but I mean, this is crazy. He, 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 wow. We should give Ray five to one odds. And I want to have a podcast as well. He seems more exciting than you guys. You guys are such bores. And then we could get rid of our white privilege criticisms. Ray, I'll take you up. Well, we got to give him odds, like three to one. I mean, it's not fair to take him one to one. Maybe we should hire him as an employee. We do the, I do my regular podcast with you and then another podcast with Ray. But guys, my son's home sick from school. I've got to head out of here. There's a few things that you need to talk to her about. All thing most opener, and she's racing Ajay Wilson this weekend at 600. What's going to happen there? Brittany Brown, 1066. Penn and Drake, I was going to preview that a little bit. I've got some cool stats about the collegiate 4 by 800 meter record. Could Ole Miss get it? I talked to Coach Ryan Van Hoy. I guess I'll have to reveal that on Friday's show. BYU is going big at Penn, the women as well. And Carson Wilhelm turning down $32,000. But I'll see you guys on Friday. I'm not sure if we need to talk about Ole Miss. According to Walt Murphy's article, they pulled out of the 4 by mile He said 4 by 8 record, John. Oh, 4 by 8 record. I'm sorry. Then, yes. The, um, they, no, they do. Ole Miss has a great distance crew, mid-distance crew. So 4 by 8 that could be interesting. And that's going to be on national TV. I don't know. Maybe we talk about a couple of the pen things right now. Because I'm also not going to be here for the Friday 15, well then. So, be on vacation in Barcelona. Very much looking forward to that. But we've got the pen relays on TV, ESPN 2, 2 to 4 p.m. on Saturday, including that 4 by 8 but also including RJ Wilson against the Thing Mo at 600 meters. And we can talk about how that race is going to go in a second, but I think we should open by discussing a Thing Mo's 800 meter race over the weekend. Now, I was looking at her results. We know her 2021 season was great, but 
I didn't realize she ran a personal best in every single 800 meter final she ran last year, starting with the 20107 indoors in January, then SEC indoors 158, outdoor opener 157, Olympic trials 156, Olympic games 155, American record, pre classic 155, American record. So six for six in terms of personal best, but she's 0 for 1 in terms of PBs this year. She won her opener. It was at the Michael Johnson Invitational. The same meet she ran 157 at last year. This time she ran 202. Now, it was a bit windy, and her margin of victory was actually a little larger. Last year, she beat Aaliyah Miller, who was the NCAA Indoor Champion, by three seconds. And this time, it was three seconds. is a little bit more. It was like 3.14 versus 3.58. What do you make of her 202 opener at Michael Johnson, Weldon? Oh. Rojo's back here, so I'm curious what he thinks. I thought he was gone. It was super windy. Uh, well, do we know the splits? I, I, I just didn't think that much of it. Not as I wasn't impressed by it, but it's not like, oh, wave the white flag or season's over. I think Ajay Wilson could beat her at 800 right now. I wouldn't rule that out. And if you'd asked me that three months ago, I'm like, no, I think our thing's going to stomp Ajay. But Ajay was the world indoor champion. She's looking good. At 600, which they're going to race at Penn on Saturday, assume on the national TV window. I give the advantage to, I think, Mo, for sure. But, man, you don't want to be off. She ran 155 last year. But the the U.S. team is so hard to make. It's the toughest distance event by far to make, so... She's going to need to be on our game at Worlds. I still expect her to make the team to win the World Championship. I mean, I, I, I'm not, this 202 doesn't, she's still my favorite to win the World Championship. Yes, I made him back, folks. I be able to make it to the end of the podcast. I didn't think I could. Look, I've been pointing out her times have been just a little bit slower than they were last year, but it has been extremely windy. John, you made a good point about the 400. Her open four was significantly slower than she, when she ran anything last year. But I was looking at the wet wind. I mean, you said the wind was windy for the 400. The winds were up to 40 miles per hour on this day. So I don't know, though. It's just like how many times can we keep making tiny excuses, tiny excuses, tiny excuses? Am I a little bit worried about it? Yes. But 40 miles an hour for winds? No. But the thing that struck me was the people behind her were all running like seasonal best. They were still running better than they've been running. So I don't know how much it impacted the wind. You know, you are running in a circle, so you run into a headwind and tailwind. But you'd rather be still, so. I think Mo ran a seasonal best. I mean, you don't do you did you look at how often all these kids had raced, Robert? No, look. This weekend at Penn, who do I expect to win? Aw thing Mo. Will y'all admit this? If Aw Thing Mo does not win this race, it's a major red flag because that's her wheelhouse is six hundred. I mean, she's so good at the four hundred. Amazing at the eight hundred. Six hundred is probably her best event. And she should not lose to RJ Wilson in that. Definitely. If she loses to RJ Wilson in 600, then I'm like, all right, things are different from last year. I'm no longer awarding a thing, Mo, the gold medal on a plate, which I think a lot of people did at the start of the year. Yeah. So I do think this this 600, assuming both of them run it, I would, the Toy Ghoul's also in the field. I want to make sure this race actually happens because I know sometimes high profile athletes do withdraw at the last minute, but assuming it happens, I think it's going to be telling. I'm curious. If you have to run a 600 to get them to both show up, just wish they were racing 800, but it's early season. It's Penn. And Penn's done a good job this year. 
getting a few matchups, the meat is no longer part of under, under the USATF umbrella. Used to be USATF did all the USA versus the relays, world relays. That's gone this year. Penn's putting on the meet itself. And they've got some nice, you know, individual stars. Sydney McLaughlin's going to run the 100-meter hurdles. So it's just a different meet. I, I, I guess all that relay worked, John. Just they realized it wasn't paying off. We, we, we kept dropping batons, losing Olympics, losing world championships. Do we have a relay coach? Can we just please make Carl Lewis the relay coach? If you're going to go down in flames, let's go down with flames with like a hero, a hero of the sport who, I don't know, I guess my generation, Carl Lewis is my first memory of the sport. But if they drop the baton with Carl Lewis, I don't care. I'm just like, well, we tried our best. We had a guy who was one of the greatest sprinters of all time coaching us. Better than Dennis Mitchell. Yeah, well, I don't know. I don't think they have a relay coach at the moment. It was Aaron Richburg last year? Again, the four by one was a utter debacle. He wasn't even in Tokyo because his wife was sick. So I don't know who they should announce. I mean, here's the thing, though: we're three months out from the World Championships. Do they have a relay coach? Seems like something you should have if you're going to be hosting the World Championships three months from now, right? Well, John, that's a story idea. Why don't you ask them? See if they bother to get back to you. And I'd also like to connect while you're asking them for that. What happened to Penn and Drake? He used to be part of the USAT of Sitters. Why isn't so either talk to the Penn or Drake people? Like I just would like to have more of an explanation for things from USATF. Speaking of USATF, we're gonna have a story dropping soon on the Olympic marathon trials. I'd also for twenty twenty four, there were basically the USATF in March released a request for proposal soliciting bids for the 2024 Olympic marathon trials. They had a deadline of April 15th to register your interest in bidding for this, for the trials. And they said they were going to award the trials by July 14th. And right now there is very little buzz about anyone bidding for this thing. I've heard Orlando might be interested, but no one connected to the Orlando bid has gotten back to me. USATF, I've asked them multiple times for any sort of information about the trials. Has anyone bid on it? Will anyone from USATF talk to me for, for this story? Just basically was ignored, got no response about whether anyone's bid or any sort of that things going on. So I'm very interested to see what what trickles out over the next few weeks or months about people bidding for that thing and what's going to go on there because that's another thing that we really don't know anything about at the moment. And by this point in 2020, I think at the end of April, they had already awarded the trials to Atlanta. It doesn't look like they're even close to awarding a bid at this point. Or sorry, this point in 2018, you know, in the 20, in that 2020 Olympic cycle, you know what I mean? COVID, John. COVID pushed everything back. I don't expect USATF to tell you somebody's bid, but your piece is more retrospective about like the history of the trials. They really shouldn't get back to you about that stuff. It's crazy. After this piece comes out, people may not bid at all. So, sorry about that. They announced four in twenty for the twenty twenty trials. They said Chattanooga, Austin, Orlando, and Atlanta. Those are our four finalists. And maybe they're waiting a couple weeks to to get another bid or something for that. Maybe it will come out. But I just find it a little odd. This is one of the crown jewel events, and there's been very little about you know we. We're getting within two years of this event happening, and we don't know have any idea 
who who's even interested in bidding, let alone who's going to host it. Yeah, you definitely should read the article once it comes out. But the gist is, on their own, hosting Olympic marathon trials is a huge money loser. And people think long-term, it helps the brand, like Atlanta Track Club. People now know about that. You might go to Peachtree over the ages. It raises their profile. Some states have rebate programs for like out-of-state tourists. So if a state wants to put up the money or a tour- local tourism board, the money works a little bit better. But just races nonprofit races on their own, putting them up, it's sort of hard for a lot of them to justify. And the fear is with the current setup, you might get to a situation where nobody bids. So then what Then what happens? But I just wonder if John, publicizing the concern of some of these groups that have bid in the past, if people on the fence about bidding are like, oh, we're not going to do it. But that's not my problem. I mean, that's not, maybe that speaks to you. I think the general tone at USATF right now is, look, people keep bidding on this. The terms right now are very favorable to us. Why would we change them? They're only going to change something, my sense, is is if they reach a point where no one is bidding or where all the people interested in bidding are saying something really needs to change. I don't think that's happened yet. Right. I mean, and the difficulty is also you can't charge admission. What if they fenced off in there near the finish or had like a virtual honor system? If you're there, you pay some fee. Got to think outside of the box, people. But hey, the state of Utah is paying hundreds of thousands of dollars to sponsor a training group in Utah, this new Jared Ward training group. So what if some of these states, you know, you're on TV, I I don't know how much that's worth, but the state of Texas gave a million dollars, right? Over a million dollars to Houston for hosting the trial. So if if that's really what it's worth, and some of these economic impact numbers events are very questionable. But the state gave the money to Houston. But if every state, if everybody go lobby their state and say, hey, chip in a million bucks, I think we won't have problem getting bidders. But Atlanta, you know, didn't have any government money helping out. So, yeah, no, that's that's the big takeaway, Weldon, is if you get the right, if you get some local tourism board or state tourism board or a sports commission, if they're the ones bidding for the trials and paying all this money for it, it's not going on a nonprofit like the Atlanta Track Club or the BAA or the Houston Marathon, then suddenly the system's a lot more workable. But that's just not really what's been happening for most of the most recent trials. Anyway, if you want more on that, read the article. But Robert is back. What, what do, you, do you have a rant prepared for us, Robert? What do you want to talk about next? I was going to share with the supporter club members how I was racially profiled at the local convenience store. But I think I'll save that for next week. Um, you guys are talking about money. How about Carson Worrell? I'm turning down $32,000 to race. Ray Benjamin at the pre-classic he said in the Norwegian papers that like he didn't want to get destroyed on travel halfway across the world to get destroyed. And I, what did you guys think of this? I thought it was a good decision. It, it was posted on the message board. They got out, turned down 300,000, 300,000 kroner. I originally thought it was $300,000. I was like, well, I might take that much money, but no, if it's not like life altering money, $30,000 as much as that guy makes, I personally thought it was the right call. Why would he want to travel halfway across the globe, you know, in a point that's going to be what, six, eight weeks out from Worlds? That's a key training block. And you go to support a meet that's sponsored by Nike? No, 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 no. For 30 grand? No way. Not worth it. I think it was a smart call. Oh, personally for him, no doubt. I agree. Like, if he's got a system that works, remember last year he didn't run his first 100 hurdles race until. July 1st, sorry, 400 hurdles race until July 1st. So 
he only wants to race when he's ready. And guess what? When he's ready, he never loses. So I don't, I don't blame him for passing this up. But as a fan of the sport, it would be nice if we could see Carsten Warholm and Ry Benjamin race each other outside of the championships. These are two of the greatest talents ever in this event. They've raced three... T- their primes are basically overlapping at the same time. And yet they've raced three times in their life. World Championship Final of 2019 the Olympic final of 2021 and a diamond league final of 2019. That's it. And you know, other sports like the NFL, you'll get Patrick Mahomes playing against Tom Brady in the regular season. I mean, I guess it's dependent on the contract. It's a thing, but like the difference between track and other sports is like track. If you don't want to race until you're absolutely ready and you don't want to face the top competition until the top champion, the major championships, you can do that. And you can't do that in some of these other sports where they just set the schedule. Like Liverpool, in the, um, they're playing the Champions League right now. If the Premier League says, hey, you're playing Manchester City on this date, and then you're playing a Champions League semifinal against Villarreal on this date, and then you're playing Manchester City again in the FA Cup semifinals on this date, they don't really have any wiggle room. They got to they gotta go up and show up and perform all those different events. And track and field, you you don't have to do it. And so I guess it comes down to what's best for the athlete or best for the sport. Is it best for the sport if Warholm is racing Benjamin more often? I would say yes. It would be nice to have a way that, that, that to see that happen. But is it best for Carson Warholm or Ray Benjamin? Not necessarily. And I, I don't I understand why they would want to do their own thing. We need I don't know. You have like these famous numbers, like the Fibonacci number. There's some we need to come up with some number for track and field. It might be dependent upon the event, but like how often should these guys race? 400 hurdles might be like three times a year. 110 meter hurdles that might be the only one they can race every weekend because the hurdles are like the short hurdles. There's just so much more variance, but you don't want the hundred guys you know squaring off every week. Yeah, but this well, it's not great for the sport. It'd be great first pre with fans at the new stadium to have him square off, but he's not ready. The big thing for me, I also liked was the appearance fees coming out. People need to share this information. I'm surprised that came out. If you want to share your appearance fee, email me. Weejo at let's run.com. Like former pros, people aren't, you're not supposed to share this stuff, but like if you were pro five years ago, come on, share some of the info. Like we can keep you anonymous at this point. They're not going to figure it out. It's not going to hurt you financially. I think we need a little more transparency in the sport or agents. You want to share the information? We did the big salary survey. What was that? Probably like three or four years ago. And we had agents tell us anonymously like what people made for, in terms of sponsorship contracts. It's pretty informing. Well, they were making their guesses of other athletes because no one wanted to say their own client's salaries. But yeah, no, I thought that was interesting. $30,000 for Warhol. And he's one of the biggest stars in the sport. I think we can reveal now, John. A couple agents did guess on their own athletes. And I think I was like, so I guess I can assume this is the amount of the contract. Um, I mean, there's no way to figure that out if you read the article. So good luck. To, but, you know, we can reveal that now for sure. Yeah. What what I would say, I think the ideal number is three. I think you race once before the championships, you race at the championships, and then you race each other in the Diamond League final. And in the 100, that's kind of what you're going to get. This is what I'm really excited about the men's 100 this year, because we have a star-studded showdown at the Prefontaine Classic. You've got all the Olympic medalists, so Marcel Jacobs, Fred Curley, Andre de Grasse. You've got all the top Americans showing up to run that one. So you get to see, okay, here's where everyone's at on May 28th. Then you get to see the Olympics. 
And then at the end of the season, everyone comes together for some money in Zurich in the Diamond League final. I think that's that's the best way to do it. So in, in an ideal world, maybe Warholm and Benjamin, they do some sort of thing like the college football teams do, and they agree to do a home-and-home. Home. One year that they'll both show up to the pre-classic, and then next year they both show up to Oslo for the Bislett games. You know, that might be cool, but I just think it would be good for the sport if we're seeing these two transcendent talents racing each other more than just at the championships. All right, last thing, guys. Brittany Brown, 1066. I know it's when dated, but could someone, I mean, we need to, we need, we need to have, this is why we need to have Ray's take on here. Could someone explain to me how she's been able to improve so much? I mean, and I think a lot of people are going to say, oh, drugs. I, I've, I'm not trying to insinuate she's on drugs, but this is a woman who didn't even make the NCAA finals in the 100 or 200 as a senior in 2018 for Iowa. Um, her indoors that year, she also didn't make the final. So indoors or outdoors, 2018 doesn't make the final. Her best NCAA finish, I think, was like fifth or fourth in the 200 indoors one, one year. She graduates in 2018. 2019, she wins world silver in the 200, which is mind-boggling to begin with. But now she's taken it to a whole other level. 1066 went eight. I mean, her collegiate PB was 1128. So... She did make the Olympic team last year. Like, does she have some sort of illness or does she get injured all the time? Like, it's just bizarre, but it's amazing and fun to watch. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense to me at all, Robert. You know, she's 27 and she's suddenly gone. This is the seventh, she's the seventh fastest all conditions performer of all time in the 100 now. And some of the women ahead of her, Flojo, you know, questionable, Blessing Okikbare, busted for drugs, Marion Jones. Busted for drugs, complete agenda. I mean, definitely some question marks ahead of her on that list. So, yeah, I, I don't get it. She was a good 200 runner, but she didn't even make the Olympics last year. And now she's running 10.66, which converts to about a 10.82 in still conditions. Is she now, would you say, is she now like the favorite in the women's 100 in the US? Could she make the team? Because we don't know what the hell's going on with Shakari Richardson. I don't know if I would go that far, but. You know, she she's destroyed Gabby Thomas, who is a terrific hundred and two hundred meter runner and the bronze medalist from the Olympics last year. Obviously, John, she can make the team. I mean, she just ran ten six six. I remember talking to her at Worlds. It was like this kind of feel good story. I mean, she was unsponsored, right, when she got that silver, and then COVID and everything didn't do much out after it. So maybe she was ready for a breakthrough. Who knows? Maybe she was hurt last year. Obviously, there's going to be skeptics, but. I mean, it was cool. Like she was working like a part-time job when she got the or got the medal at Worlds in 2019. So looks like Adidas got a good investment in this one. She she must have gotten hurt at USA's last year. By the way, she didn't even run the hundred USA's last year because she had run 22:43 heading in, and she ran 22:97 with a 1.8 win tailwind in the semi. So. That's pretty bad. And she ran 23-0 in her next race two months later. So if you know what's up, let's know. But on Friday, we're going to break it down. for Maybe we should record Thursday, John, because you're heading out of town. John will not be here Friday for recording Thursday. If we record Thursday, the Penn women's relay women's stuff starts on Thursday anyways. We can break down Penn. We can pick John Drake, some other stuff. What else do we have this weekend, John? Well, those are the two big things, right? I... I'm trying to think, is there anything else apart from those? 
I think Adidas is doing another run for records somewhere in Europe, but I don't know who's in the races or what distances they're going for. So TBD on that one. All right, everyone, sign up for the Supporters Club. Let's run com slash subscribe, and we'll see you on Friday. But before that, we've got our talk with Jerry Buma, author of the book Touching Greatness Forever Together, the Villanova track story. A perfect read for Pin Relays Week. Jerry explains how one school dominated the DMR at Pin, has some great insight on the great Jumbo Elliott, and how one little school in Philadelphia produced one great middle distance runner after another. Plus some great life plus some great life lessons and how many sub four minute milers Jerry thinks are working at just about every big high school in the Americas. Here's Jerry. It's pin relays week, and we've got a great book, very appropriate for pin. It's called Touching Greatness Forever Together, The Villanova Track Story, 1966 to 1981. It's by Jerry Buma. He was the 1974 co-captain of the Villanova team. And Jerry was a 406 miler on cinder track back in the day in high school. He ended up running 224 for the thousand, which was the top time in Canada. And in this book, he brings to life the amazing Villanova track and field story. People, I barely know this story. People much younger than me don't even know this story. It needs to be told, but Jumbo Elliott was the coach at Villanova from 1949 to 1981. His athletes set five world records. They won eight NCAA titles, 82 NCAA individual crowns, 66 world records. But the most impressive thing might have been winning the DMR at Penn Relays for 16 straight years. And Jerry, there were some legendary mile, milers, mid-distance runners at Villanova. Marty LaCorey, Eamon Coughlin, Don Page, Sidney Marie. I'm, I'm sure I'm forgetting a, a lot of them, but... Dave Patrick, Marty LaCorey, Nardnet, Eamon Coughlin, uh, Mark Belger. Yeah, it's an incredible, an incredible streak of uh, milers that sort of went from one generation to the next. And that's really the essence of the story. How did this happen and how did this transfer of, of greatness and commitment to, to winning continue for such a long period of time? Because this, the astonishing thing about the streak, 16 straight to DMRs, uh, is that uh, in college, uh, no athlete competes more than three years. So you have five complete uh, turnovers. It's not like a professional team. I, I checked all the records. Boston Celtics had eight consecutive wins with Bill Russell. He was there the whole time. You look at the Yankees, you look at the Montreal Canadiens, they had five uh, consecutive wins, but they'd have the same team before the streak and after. Villanova kept turning over, and it was just one great athlete after the next. And it's really an interesting story of characters, culture, coaching, and that incredible commitment to team and, and to winning. I assume a lot of people want to give the coach Jumbo Elliott all the credit, but it, is it about building the culture, the workouts? Kind of tell us some of the stories in the book. Well, Jumbo was so unusual. It, it was such an anomaly compared to today's coaching who are so involved with their athletes. Uh, Jumbo ran his own independent uh, business. He sold heavy machinery. You see very little of Jumbo. Uh, Jumbo would arrive, uh, uh, one Tuesday in early September and give us his pep talk. And then we wouldn't see him again for a month. 
uh, and we'd see him on Tuesdays when we would do the repeat quarters, and then we'd see him on the weekends when we ran cross country races. Uh, when we got to indoor track, we'd see him three days a week, show up at three thirty, and be gone by four thirty, four to five after the world. Uh, and but but what he did, uh, he created this this expectation of winning, and uh, I think because of the his his relative distance, call it a certain cognitive uh, dissonance. Uh, he created that kind of need to achieve because there was no handholding. You had to decide uh, to make it and to be committed. And I think that's what defined the, the great milers that came out of Villanova. They were truly uh, independently motivated. They were struck by a strong support cast. And the team really supported each other because there wasn't much uh, support for the team. Our, our training programs was nothing sophisticated. We put in the miles. Jumbo said, put in the miles, nice and easy, like money in the bank. And then we basically repeat quarters uh, uh, two or three times a week during track season, once a week for five or six weeks during cross country. There was nothing more sophisticated than that. Miles and quarters. Make it sound easy. And I think a lot of today's track coaches might like Jumbo's schedule. Show up three days a week and... Yes. But it's even more fascinating that he could build this culture this way. Um, it sounds like there's an assistant coach who, who is pretty important. Our assistant coach was Jack Pyra, and we called him Mother Pyra. And uh, as John Hardnett would say, um, we didn't call him for mother, for mother for no reason. He was the guy that looked after all the niggling day-to-day life details. Uh, people getting shoes, uh, people getting their into the right courses, uh, people getting their uh, meal money, uh, all people with their personal problems, uh, you know, issues that would come up, all the non-coaching things. As her mother, Pyro, would, would fit in. And really, quite frankly, well, then if it wasn't the kind of nurturing that Pyra was able to provide, Jumbo would not have had the success that he had because he didn't have to worry about the day-to-day stuff. He just set an example, uh, called to a higher order, if you will. Uh, he really understood competition. He understood psychology. He was able to uh, determine weakness. And he, we saw it several times when, at the time, the greatest runner in the world was Jim Ryan. Well, Dave Patrick beat Jim Ryan in, a, in the indoor 880 at the uh, NCAA um, indoor championships in a world record. And Marty Lepore beat Jim Ryan three times. Even though he wasn't on paper as fast, he could beat Jim Ryan. That was because Jumbo knew what Ryan's weakness was, and he told his athletes what to do, and they followed him to a T, and they would beat him every time. Fascinating. (laughs) What was the weakness? Yeah, what was the weakness? Well, Ryan liked to kick, and he would. everybody knew what a strong kicker he was, and everybody sort of let him play with the field, and then go with about a lap to go. Uh, Jumbo knew that if you got a jump on Ryan, he wouldn't up. Uh, and, and then he would have to run from behind. And so if you look at Patrick, his famous quote, uh, Joe told him before the race, uh, go to the lead and improve your position. So in other words, he took the lead immediately, and, and Ryan was running at the whole time more tense than he normally was, and he couldn't catch it. In the case of before, LaCorey, uh, the great Dream Mile, which took place in 1971, uh, when Ryan was world record holder, uh, LaCorey was ranked number one in the world. Uh, uh, Ryan made a move, actually, it was a very slow first half, like 204. 
And then Ryan went to the front, and then immediately LaCorey blew by him with a full 700 to go, right at the top of the back straight, and just hammered. And they ran that last 800 in 151. They ran 354 after a 204 first uh, half. And and Ryan tried to catch up to him and got really close into the into the home stretch, but LaCorey was able to hold him off. So it was that attack early would keep him off balance. That's and, and Jumbo seemed to know that. He clearly knew a lot. And I, in terms of the streak, I guess, coming to an end, it, I didn't realize this until I just started talking to you now, but the streak ended in 1981, I guess right after Jumbo died the same year. Right. It actually, 81, uh, Jumbo died in late March of 81. Penn really is, is late April. And Sidney Marie was the anchor that year. And he, was, he still won that race. So that was a huge relief for Pirate. The next year, uh, 82, is when the streak ended. And uh, uh, now Charlie Jenkins was the coach. Uh, and Charlie didn't have the same, quite frankly, uh, intuition that Jumbo did. And, and, and he, he, he chose, unfortunately, for, for Ross Donahue, who was chosen as anchor. He'd been a transfer student. He'd never run a race for Villanova at Penn Relays. This was his first race. And here he was up against John Gregoric, against Georgetown, who was getting stronger and stronger. We had another runner, John Hunter, who had run like a 222,000. He was right knocking on the door four minutes. Um, he should have anchored. I think if John had anchored, he had the experience. He'd run several races at Penn before. Uh, he would have been able to be relaxed and, and move accordingly. But uh, what happened, Donnie got the stick a good 35 meters ahead of Gregoric. But he was so f- terrified of Gregor catching up to him. As soon enough, he did. And then he blew by him, and that was the end of the street. <laughs> that wouldn't have happened under Jumbo's uh, tutelage. Yeah, I mean, it just shows the mental side of running, right? Oh, totally, totally. The confidence and the... Where Ross was just so stressed out going into the race. And then, of course, he was kind of in no man's land, just waiting for, for Gregor to show up. Even though he had almost a half a, a straightaway lead. Uh, and Gregor just, you know, ran like 56, 156, 256. And he ended up running one of the best uh, miles for the DMR ever. But uh, I know uh, a different, none of the other guys that would have anchored in the past, like LaCorey or Hartnett or, or a Coughlin or a Page or a Marie, uh, would have uh, let that happen. They would have, uh, they would have been able to handle it. And I feel like, Pin's still a big deal, but I feel like Pin was a bigger deal back then. Like, did everybody go one over? Was the DMR at Pin the race? Pin relays, of course. It, uh, well, historically, it was started in 1895, the year before the, the first Olympics. And for many years, particularly I'd say the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, it clearly brought the best schools from the U.S. Uh, to the meet. Uh, over the years, and partly because of the fact that Villanova kept winning so many rates, Villanova won 16 MRs in that 16-year period. It won a total of 52 championships of American races. So I think 12 four-mile relays, 10 uh, uh, two-mile relays. They won the the uh, the, the one-mile relay six or seven times. They won the sprint times. Uh, this uh, this meet and a lot of schools just said well, we're not coming to Villa- the pen because it's just the Villanova relays, so uh, that was a factor. But then of course some of the other relays uh, gained in prominence. Texas, for example, Mount Sac, uh, Drake, uh, 
Uh, and so you had more competition. So it, it, it's over time, I would say the prestige of pen relays and the draw that has been able to uh, actually attract has diminished. Interesting. And it sounds like you guys also had a tremendous camaraderie. I mean, running a college, I can't explain it how much it meant to me. And I was on a terrible team at Yale, but I mean, I'm looking at, are there life lessons in the book? I mean, it looks like you've gone on to a very successful career. You helped put on the world championships at Edmonton in 2001. Your email, your e- the bottom of your email says honorary council, the kingdom of the Netherlands. I don't even know what that means, but it sounds cool. <laughs> well, simply, well, then uh, every country has a as diplomatic hierarchy. You have an ambassador, you have uh, consul generals, and then depending on the country and the diaspora that's in the country that's being uh, ripped, um, will appoint honorary consuls. So I, I'm actually, because of my Dutch heritage, I was born a Canadian, but my parents are Dutch immigrants. Uh, I was appointed the honorary consul for the Netherlands for the Northern Alberta. So I have several counterparts. That, there's one for Calgary, there's one for uh, Montreal, there's one for Quebec City. Uh, and then we have two consulates plus the embassy, uh, the embassy in Ottawa. Oh, very cool. So I help liaise between Dutch interests and the Canadian interests. And are there, I mean, are there life lessons you've learned from running at Villanova that carried with you every day? I mean, we're always runners, right? But like that competitive running part of our lives, it's very short. What did you take away from Villanova? Absolutely. Well, then uh, obviously the discipline, uh, the live like a clock, uh, which is Jumbo's most famous adage, you know, doing everything the same time each day. So having a schedule. And being committed to a regular uh, routine, uh, both both in your work life and your your recreational life and your your athletic life, uh, but but believing that excellence is possible and uh, it can be achieved anywhere if you put the right ingredients together. I, I really believe there's talent everywhere. I believe that you can go into any high school of you know a thousand, fifteen hundred kids, and you can find three or four potential four-minute milers. All you have to do is find them and then nurture them and forgive them the support and the, and the proper sort of the vision and then the, the program and the belief in, in oneself and in a program that can be accomplished. I think the real lesson for Illinois Track is when a, when a group of obviously talented athletes believed in what was possible uh, and were inspired by a coach that was able to uh, really draw on excellence and performance uh, that's when the world records and the and these streaks and these uh, substantial wins take place, uh, and that's possible everywhere. It's just a question of putting those ingredients together. I've always said running's a great metaphor for life, and oh, totally. I need to read the book. I didn't do my homework on this one. I haven't read the book yet, but I'm excited to. I'm, I'm a, I'll put a link to the book in the show notes. There's a book signing, and it sounds like Thursday and All right. tomorrow night. Okay, I'll put the details of that out there as well. So, uh, well, then I have a challenge. Uh, given my own uh, literary uh, historical proclivities, I'm able to weave in such uh, characters as Fyodor Dostoevsky, Oscar Wilde, Jane Fonda. All these people appear in the book. And there's a reason for them being there. So you, you will uh, be able to uh, satiate your uh, intellectual uh, curiosity about uh, how these characters emerge in a... Uh, book on track field, but really 
I guess the point I want to make, well, then you've touched on it. Well, it's about track. It's not really about track. It's about life. It's about commitment. It's about camaraderie. It's about team. It's about support. It's about belief in each other and helping each other succeed. That's, that's what the book is about. Okay. Well, that, that's gotten me even more interested because <laughs> I get emailed about so many running books. I can't just, I just, I generally just don't read them anymore. I'm like, Oh, uh, I've read so many running books. So everyone needs to read this book. I, I'm going to read it. Yeah. I, I do spend a whole chat on the, the setting. I'm a great believer that the, the setting, i.e. the ambience of a place, the culture, the landscape uh, is an influencing factor. So I spent quite a bit of time on what the campus was like. I talk uh, quite a bit about one thing about Villanova that made it unique is that we trained on what we refer to the boards. We actually were the only school that I know of that actually had a 11 lap, 160 yard board track set up outside. I can tell you the conditions, the wind blowing, the snow having to be swept off the boards doing the three lappers, the two lappers, the five lappers, the four lappers, that, uh, that, that created an environment and uh, uh, a determination. I think it was very, very, very particular to the Villanova experience. So read about the board, read about the field house, read about the loops, man. And then I get into the coach uh, and I talk about Jumbo as being a man of many colors, like a human kaleidoscope. Every time you thought you knew him, you learned something more about him and how he truly was a man of his times coming out of the fifties and the sixties and how that influenced uh, his worldview, the history that was going on, the politics. Uh, another great chapter of Dave Patrick was one of the, one of the first major, uh, boycotts took place and you may, most of your readers probably don't know this, but there was a, a, a longstanding indoor meet in New York called the New York athletic club meet, uh, held by the New York athletic club, obviously at Madison square gardens. 1968, Villanova boycotted that meet because New York AC didn't allow blacks or Jews to be members. And finally, some of the black athletes said, we've had enough. So they boycotted that meet and that was the end of that meet and led to that very tumultuous 1968 experience, uh, all uh, culminated by John Carlos and Tommy Smith uh, in the 68 Olympics. And there's a whole discussion on the racial issue and, and the Villanova and Larry James who finished second and the 400 meters played in that. So lots of history, lots of culture, uh, and lots of really characters. I really get into great detail with Sidney Marie coming from apartheid South Africa. He's the first black uh, athlete to come from South Africa, and everybody thought he was just another good black athlete. But if you really understand what he came from and the structure of apartheid culture, you would see the incredible obstacles he had overcome. Uh, when he came to uh, an upper middle-class white school like Villanova, it was, a, it was an enormous challenge that most people did not realize. So I talk about that. I talk about Eamon Coughlin's background. I talk about Marty LaCroix's background in New Jersey. So lots of lots of good stuff out there, uh, Well, That sounds very interesting. You know, serious social stuff, running stuff, life lessons. I'm looking forward to it. One final running question. All of these great milers, do you have like... Who was the greatest miler of all time? Do you have one? Well, Sidney Marie and us with the fastest time at 348. He ran 348 back in 1981. And then he ran 347 at the Madison Avenue Mile, still the record in New York City. Sidney was an incredible athlete. But the unbelievable relentless German will to win, Don Page, 
probably if he had been able to run in 1980 uh, at the Olympics, and he ended up beating Sebastian Cole a few weeks after the Olympics. Uh, Don Page was an incredible athlete, but then LaCroix was an incredible competitor. So, and, and Coughlin, of course, he set the world record for the indoor mile, which he stood, which he held for almost 20 years. Uh, there's three or four of them, and uh, I don't think any one of them would have dominated the other. They would have, someone asked me if I chose between uh, Sydney Marie, uh, Don Page, uh, who would win. I says, I think if there were 10 races, each would win five. That's how good they were. And they'd all been on records for <laughs> times. Well, I, I don't think it was a coincidence. All these people went to Villanova and I'm sure that'll come out when I actually read the book. So enjoy Penn this weekend. I wish I was there. Yes. And my apologies for the background, uh, uh, ambience being in the airport here, but I really appreciate this opportunity to chat with you and call me anytime or follow up anytime. Yeah, for sure. I shouldn't have reached out to you, you know, a day before pin, but thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah. Right now. Remember, if you want to take your recovery seriously, you got to try the TheraBody Recovery Air. Personally, I love the Jet Boots because they're wireless, super easy to use. They fold into a little bag. 60-day money-back guarantee. Check it out for yourself. Try them out yourself. TheraBody.com slash Let's Run. Link in the show notes.